You know the old Three Musketeers saying, all for one and one for all? Sometimes it's all for one, and sometimes it's one for all. There are times when a community acts together, united for a cause, and then there are other times, some significant times in history, where one member stands as the representative on on behalf of an entire people and acts on their behalf. And when one person, what one person does will have consequences for all of those whom he represents. There are times when it is one for all. At the Summer Olympics of 1988, our nation of Canada was represented at the men's 100 meter finals by a man named Ben Johnson. It's odd how the shortest event at the Olympics tends to really like steal the thunder and become the big deal. Right? It's one of, if not the most important events. The winners of the 100 meters is the fastest man on the planet. And as Canada, as, as a nation, we had an opportunity to claim gold in that race. And represented by Ben Johnson, we did. He won. But the victory was short-lived. Test results led to a steroid scandal, and after only two days of celebration, the glory of that victory was taken away. Johnson was stripped of his gold medal, and he returned to Canada not as a hero, but in disgrace. And there's obviously more to a life in a man than just one moment. There's more to Ben Johnson's story. But as our national representative, as someone who acted for us and in our place, his role had come to an end. And just as we shared in the glory of his victory, Canada as a whole shared in the, in the shame of the scandal. Eight years later, at the Olympic Games in Atlanta, 1996, there was a chance for that to change. This time Canada was to be represented in the 100 meter by an athlete named Donovan Bailey. When the time came for the runners to take their marks in that gold medal heat, Bailey stood in for our nation to do what no one else in all of Canada was able to do. We all desperately wanted as a country to have a new story to tell, one that would replace the old story of shame and defeat with one of victory and vindication. But there was only one man able to do that in our place. There was only one man to hand the ball to when the game was on the line. And when Donovan Bailey won that race, Canada won that race. It was the Canadian flag that was hoisted high in glory in the auditorium. It was O Canada that blared over the speakers that day, and it was Canada's Olympic record that permanently ticked up one gold medal in the records of the biggest race of them all. The concept that one can stand in for many is an important idea in Scripture. We read in Romans that just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and death spread to all men through sin, as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Like it or not, Adam was our representative, and we have gone the way he went into sin and death. But praise God that all who are in Christ have found forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life through the obedience of Jesus. There are times when one stands in for many with real consequences. There are times where by faith we need to see and trust that Jesus has been the one who has stood in our place and won a victory over sin and hell that we could never have won ourselves. 
This morning in our studies through the Gospel of John, we arrive at chapter 17, where we have recorded for us the prayer of our Lord. I would encourage you to turn to John 17 in your Bibles now so you have it in front of you when we read it in just a moment. But we often hear recorded in the Gospels many mentions that Jesus had a robust prayer life, that he would go off on his own and, and he would pray. But we have precious few examples of his actual prayers recorded for us. And John 17 is an exception. Jesus has just finished what we usually call his farewell discourse. He's given his last words and promises and advice to his closest followers and friends. And now, immediately before his death, he prays. We expect to spend uh, at least three weeks, three sermons inside this prayer. Jesus prays first for himself in chapter 17, and then he prays for his followers around him, and then he goes on to pray for all of those who will come to believe in his name uh, years down the future. He, he prays for us in John chapter 17. Today we're going to look at the first five verses. We're going to listen to the eternal Son speak directly to his heavenly Father and listen to what Jesus prays for himself. And we need to come humbly to these words with the realization that this is a prayer which only Jesus could pray. It's a prayer we all desperately need to be prayed. It's a prayer that has precious and far-reaching consequences for us, but it is not a prayer that anyone other than Jesus could ever offer to the Father. And so our goal this morning is not really to jump ahead to the things we can do for Jesus, but to listen and believe in what he has done for us. And trust me, as we move on the next few weeks, uh, further on into this prayer, we will have many opportunities to feel the weight of the plans that Jesus prays for us. In many ways, we come to later parts in this prayer, and we hear Jesus praying that many of his followers would be united and empowered in such a way that what results is all for one, all for Jesus. But before we get there, this morning, we need to first let Jesus be one for all. We need to hear what Jesus prays for when on that night before he went to the cross, he prayed, prayed for himself with words that only he could pray. I'm going to pray now for just a moment before we read Heavenly Father, we thank you for these precious words of our Lord that are recorded for us, for our benefit, for our life, if we hear them and trust them. Lord, we, I, I often pray before a message that, that we will see Jesus glorified in your word. And this morning, that is exactly what Jesus himself prayed. And so we ask in his name that you will answer that prayer that Jesus will be made glorious in our sight this morning, that we will be able to exalt in the worth and the excellence of your Son and our Savior. We pray that in his name now. Amen. Let's read John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The outline that I've given for you this morning is fairly simple. Glory, glory, glory. If I were to read through that passage again and leave out the sentences that leave out the word glory or glorify, I would pretty much read the same passage. Jesus asks that the Father would glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify the Father. And then Jesus makes the statement, I have glorified you on earth. And finally, at the end, Jesus asks that the Father will specifically glorify him in the Father's presence with the glory that he enjoyed before creation. It's all very tightly connected, and our goal this morning will just be to grasp and understand some of this glory that Jesus is speaking about. And in order to do that, we're going to consider three different kinds of glorification that are involved in the requests that Jesus makes. The first kind of glory that we turn to is the glory that the Father bestows upon the Son surrounding his life and mission on earth. The glory that Jesus gives to the Son that has to do with his life and mission on the earth. One meaning of the verb glorify is to reveal the worth and the value of the one who is being glorified. If you were with us and you recall all the way back to an earlier time in this series in the Gospel of John, we were considering John 12, 23, when Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is expressing his personal understanding that the time for his ultimate act of sacrifice and salvation and revelation is here. That he very soon he will be lifted up on the cross to die and then be raised from the dead. And we had to explain back there how Jesus could talk of such a shameful, gruesome death in terms of glorification. Why does Jesus say that the hour of his death is the hour of his glory? Well, one meaning of glorify is to reveal the worth of something. And in the cross, we see revealed the righteousness and mercy and grace of God. I think I gave the example back then of how my, my little daughter, Lily, it's her birthday today, uh, how she is beautiful. And she, she says, look at me, Daddy. She wants me to behold her, her glory and her beauty. And I could be in a room with her where the lights are all off, and she would still be beautiful. But when the light switch is turned on and the light falls on her and I can see her beauty, then, in a sense, she's glorified. You know, the beauty that was there has been brought to my attention. With the lights turned off, no one can see Jesus' glory in the hour of his crucifixion. But after the resurrection, through the eyes of faith, Opened by the Holy Spirit, Jesus' death on the cross can be seen as the moment of supreme glory to all who believe. Particularly in verse 2, Jesus has in mind that the world would come to see the authority that the Father has given to the Son. Since you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those whom you have given me. God the Father has seen fit to hand over all authority over all flesh to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the one who will be the judge in his holiness and in his mercy of the entire human race. 
And the reason that this is so fitting is because in God's plan of salvation, Jesus will come to the earth and he will take on the form of a servant and he will live a life without sin and he will obediently offer that life up as a sacrifice that will satisfy the wrath of God against sinners. He'll secure the forgiveness of all those who trust in him and this will allow him to give them eternal life because of his death. We read about this in Philippians 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Because of what Jesus would do, God gave him authority over all flesh. And the purpose for which Jesus has authority over all flesh is so that he might give eternal life to all of those that the Father has given to him. Often we think in terms of God's gift to us. Right? That's the terminology we use. Jesus is God's gift. Salvation is God's gift. And that's true. But many times in John's Gospel, we also see that all who believe in Jesus are, from God's perspective, gifts given from the Father to the Son. We are the gift, which is a humbling way to think about it. You could think of all humanity as represented by this really simple Venn diagram. Okay, one big circle that simply says all flesh. Every man and woman falls in that category. And that is the category where Jesus has authority to judge. And then completely inside that big circle, completely contained inside of it, is another smaller circle. And that smaller circle has many labels. It could say, those whom the Son has been given from the Father. Another label for that circle could be, those to whom Jesus has given eternal life. Another label for that circle could be, whosoever believes in Jesus Christ, the one who was sent by the Father. And there is yet another way to describe that smaller circle that we find in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If anyone has been given from the Father to the Son, if anyone has believed in Jesus Christ and has eternal life, then this is what they have. They truly know God, and they know Jesus Christ. Another way of saying this is that the way Jesus gives eternal life to those who are his is he gives them saving knowledge of who he is and what he has done and who the Father is. The mission that the Father has given the Son is this, to reveal the glory of God the Father, which is the same thing as giving them eternal life. At this point, we've already begun to bleed over into the second category of glory that we're going to consider this morning. Jesus prays that the Father will glorify him because what the Son will do will bring glory to the Father. When Jesus exercises his authority over all flesh and completes his mission by giving eternal life to those who are his own, the Father receives glory because this plan of salvation has been the Father's will from the beginning. So here is the second kind of glory we want to consider now. We want to think about the ways the Son has glorified the Father. 
When Jesus says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Jesus is saying, mission accomplished. I've done what you have asked me to do, Father. So how has the Son glorified the Father? And as we turn to consider that, we want to introduce a slightly nuanced understanding of what the verb glorify can mean. In addition to revealing the worth or value of another, glorifying them can also mean praising them or directing attention toward the worth and value of another. That's what we do every Sunday when we sing and worship. We direct attention and we praise the the glory of our God and our Savior. Sometimes beauty and worth that has always been there but hidden is revealed in a moment of glorification, like the light switch flicking on. Other times, beauty and worth are right there in plain sight, but they go unnoticed or unappreciated in the eye of the beholder. For example, if I were to stand before a masterwork painting, a masterwork of brush and canvas and strokes, in a museum, I might not have an eye to appreciate what I'm looking at until an expert wanders by and explains to me the subtlety of the brush technique and the bold choices made in shading and light and artistic influences and life experiences which have culminated in this production of a work of everlasting art by the artist. And then honestly, I still wouldn't understand any of it. I would just nod my head and pretend like I know what's good about the painting. I'm going to use my daughter again for a simpler version of the same example. I come home and she wants to display to me her latest piece of hand-drawn art. I take a look. It's a red squiggle and a yellow squiggle and a pink squiggle in the middle. And I nod my head and I, I say something about how wonderful it is. But then, suppose Lily explains the painting to me. Well, the red squiggle is you, Daddy, and the yellow squiggle is Mom. And the pink squiggle is B, and we're together because it's the best when we're together and we'll be together forever, and I love you, Dad. And then all of a sudden, what I'm looking at, I'm looking at through different eyes. Maybe it's that my, you know, my eyes were operating just fine one level, on one level a minute ago, but now their vision has been improved through the corrective power that only tears can provide. But I get it now, and it's beautiful. I was looking right at it and I didn't see the glory, but now that it's been explained to me, I see. Jesus has glorified and revealed the Father on earth. If we are ever gonna behold the glory and beauty of God, if we're gonna have a relationship with him, to know him in the sense that means to know him is to have eternal life, then we are going to come to know the Father through the work of the Son. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So in what way does knowing God equal having eternal life? Well, there's different things that knowledge can mean. Right? Let's consider some of the ways we could know God and decide which ones are, are saving and which ones aren't. Everyone has knowledge about God in the sense of just an actual awareness of his existence. Human beings have been created in the image of God. All of the created universe, its wonder and its order, speak without ceasing about the existence of a creator. Romans chapter 1. What can be known about God is plain, even to the ungodly, 
because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Everyone has an awareness of God, even though sin leads to a tendency to suppress that truth. But all of humanity has enough of awareness of God that they are under Jesus' authority and will be judged by him. So beyond an awareness that God exists, there's another level of knowledge that consists of having actual information about God. Information about God that is doctrinally true, biblically accurate information is precious and of great value. But knowing things about God is not the same thing as knowing him in a saving way that gives eternal life. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well, The demons believe that much, and they tremble. Information about God does not on its own uh, lead to saving knowledge of him. So beyond just awareness and information, we could even talk about experience of God. It's possible to have a genuine experience of God's grace, his mercy, his provision, his transcendence. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel often experienced God's, uh, God's provision in salvation and in judgment of them, yet many still did not trust and believe. Today it's possible for someone to experience some of God's goodness, some of his greatness in nature, or his, his beauty in music, to benefit from God's generosity and his mercy, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. But the definition of eternal life in verse 3 speaks of an even greater knowledge. It talks about a personal encounter with God where someone becomes convinced of God's goodness and his own sinfulness. It speaks of seeing the only hope for our deep need is there in God's grace, which has came in the Redeemer he sent, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Savior. This kind of specific knowledge is to know that God the Father is truly and really the only one true God, and that our natural inclination is to rebel against him and turn away from him. And this knowledge always involves a change of heart, a turning away from sin and error, and a complete trust and allegiance to God and Jesus. Jesus came with a mission to save sinners by revealing God's salvation to them. And in verse four, Jesus is able to announce, mission accomplished. In the opening prologue of, God's, of John's gospel, we read that Jesus came into the world as the true light, which was the life of men, that they beheld his glory full of grace and truth, and that he made known the Father. If we've been paying attention on the way through this gospel, we've seen how Jesus has glorified and revealed the Father to the world. When he told the Samaritan woman at the well he, would, he could offer her living water, what do you think he was trying to make her thirsty for? When he told the crowds around the sea that he was the bread from heaven, what do you think he wanted to make them hunger for? Jesus came to reveal the Father, and now that his hour is at hand, the appointed hour of his death on the cross, the final revealing work. This hour has come. This is the defining moment when God will reveal God's glory in its fullness. And because God's entire saving plan requires that Jesus will obediently 
die on the cross. And it, it's incredible that at this moment, with that daunting challenge immediately before Jesus, Jesus is able to pray to the Father and talk about this job as if it has already been accomplished. And it's the cross and only the cross that can communicate to lost and stubborn humanity that the Lord, the one true God, can save them. Because without the cross, knowledge of God brings with it the threat of God's wrath against our sins. But through the cross, Jesus fulfills his mission of revealing the glory of the Father's plan of salvation. Not only do we see more of God, we also see in God one who truly acts and saves from sin. So Jesus prays that the Father will glorify him in his coming death and resurrection. He says that the fulfillment of his mission glorifies the Father. And then finally, our third and final glory section, Jesus asks that the Father would glorify him in his presence with the same glory he had before the world existed. Jesus is looking beyond the cross, beyond even his resurrection, to that time when he will return to the Father's presence and have the same kind of glory that he once had and that he once set aside in order to come to the earth. And this request of Jesus actually rests on another layer of what the verb glorify can mean. In this instance, glorify means to clothe with splendor, to make glorious, to put on clothes, to put on like clothes a greater glory than what is currently there, to clothe in splendor. I'm not going to develop these next points much beyond just mentioning them, but, but here are four reasons why it is important for us to know that Jesus asks to be glorified with this glory. First, it reminds us what Jesus gave up in order to come to the earth. This reminds us that Jesus, in the words of that Philippians chapter 2 passage that we considered earlier, Jesus emptied himself that he had to leave the glorious splendor of the Father's presence, which is by any way of measuring heaven itself and the beauty and the goal of all existence to be in God's presence. Jesus had to leave that presence and empty himself of that glory in order to be born in a dirty stable, to live a common life in a starvation society without air conditioning, to be falsely accused of crimes he did not commit by those who were trying to kill him and whom he had come to die for. Find a better God. Find a better king. Find a better savior. Find a better friend. You can't make one up. One day every knee will bow at the name of Jesus because Jesus is the best man who ever lived. And Jesus is greater by far than any make-believe gods or kings we could think up. He's glorious. Second, it's meaningful to know that there is a greater glory for Jesus to return to because it means that even with all that we know about the Lord on the cross, there is still a greater glory that we can only wonder at, the full glory of Jesus in the eternal presence of the Father. As glory-filled as this passage is, and hopefully this sermon is today, that is the glory that our finite minds can grab onto. But in truth, he is greater still. Third, thinking of Jesus' eternal glory with the Father 
reminds us that when God sent his son into the world to save us, he sent us nothing less than his very self. The only begotten of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, God sent his son to reveal his glory and his very nature to us. In Jesus, we have received the most direct revelation of God that he could have possibly given us. And fourth, this idea of glorification, consisting of the Father clothing the Son in splendor, of putting onto him a kind of glory that at least for a time was not there, this concept of glorifying through clothing helps us understand what the scriptures mean when they speak of the redeemed in Christ being glorified. Even though Christ's glory is something unique to the Godhead and something which we will never possess, the picture of the Father clothing the Son with glory and worth helps to explain the Bible's promises that God's children who are saved through faith in Christ will be glorified. When God takes away our sins and puts them on Christ, he also clothes us in the glory of Christ. So the Father glorifies both the person and the work of the Son. And the Son brings glory to the Father by revealing grace and truth and righteousness and mercy and by giving eternal life to those who believe in the one true God. And finally, after raising Christ from the dead, the Father clothes the Son in eternal glory, the glory that was his before the world began. Back near the beginning, I said that and Jesus is going to pray lots of application and follow up for his believers in, in the next two parts of this prayer in chapter 17. And I'm absolutely serious when I say that this is a prayer we could not pray and that the primary application of today's passage to our hearts and lives must be to behold Jesus' glory, to let Jesus be the one who does what we cannot do in our place. If God uses this passage to grant you a deeper and realer knowledge of what he's done for you in Christ, then you will be transformed in that knowledge. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. With that in mind, I'll just make a few additional observations that do apply to us from these verses. The first is that Jesus has authority over all flesh. Whether you bowed the knee and turned from your sins and trusted him as your savior or not, there is no other judge over men and women but Jesus himself. The question we need to ask is not how can I be free from this authority because you can't. The question is one day when either your time here has run up or when Jesus has returned in the glory of his kingdom, Will you be judged as one who has received his mercy and his grace, whose sins have been covered and forgiven by his blood, or as one who continues to rebel against his rule? Having heard about his glory and been offered his grace, what other offer could you possibly be holding out for? The eternal life is to know him as your savior. The eternal death is to reject his light and condemn yourself Today is the day of God's grace and salvation. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. Trust in him today. And finally, for all those who have trusted in him, those whom the Father has given to the Son, 
and to whom the Son has given eternal life. Consider the confidence with which our Savior prayed this prayer at the very hour of his impending crucifixion. Verse 4, mission accomplished. There was no wavering in our Savior. Isn't it good to know that the one who stood in our place and who did what we could not was utterly and completely faithful to the end? So often we live with the fear that we aren't going to measure up in the day of our testing. We worry that we've forgotten something important or done something wrong, because often we have. We have this almost universal recurring nightmare that, as part of the human race, you know, that unprepared nightmare. We're about to jump from the plane. Parachute's not there. Show up to an important meeting, underprepared and underdressed. Or the classic, suddenly it's the day of a big test, and you've forgotten to study, and you are going to fail. And on top of everything else, we're always naked in that dream. Sometimes I wonder if different versions of the unprepared nightmare have been experienced by every generation of the human race ever since the fall. Because after they sinned, Adam and Eve knew they were naked and ashamed. Because every man knows deep down there is a holy judge whose authority we will one day answer to, and in our sins we are not ready. I know I could never pray with the kind of confidence that Jesus prays. I've accomplished everything, Father. The truth is, I never know from one day to the next when I'm going to let my Savior down in my own frailty. But we can know this. We have a Savior who will not let us down and with whom the Father is pleased. Even though we can't pray the prayer Jesus prayed, we can build our prayers and our life on the confidence of Jesus, our Savior, because Jesus completed the work. On the cross, the saving work of Christ is completely and perfectly accomplished, and no matter what trial we go through, even up to and including our own deaths, which each one of us must face, if we are in Christ, we are not naked or ashamed or unprepared. We are clothed in his glory, saved by his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we can only offer you our humble thanks when we think of the complete and perfect salvation that you have sent us through your son. We ask that it, today and in the days to come, you would fix our eyes on Christ's glory, you would make him glorious to us in a way that, that changes the way we see ourselves, that changes the way we see the world around us. Father, we pray that you will grant salvation to those who hear Jesus' words, who hear about his work and his glory and his salvation, which he has accomplished on our behalf. We ask that you would glorify us in your Son, so that it is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives within us. We ask that you clothe us in Christ's splendor so that we are equipped to praise you and to glorify you, to bring you glory as we serve you and love others in your name. Glorify yourself in us so much that the watching world can either only look away or be drawn irresistibly to you. 
faithfully continue your saving work in us so that we will one day be able to say, we have completed the work you have given your church to do, to shine for your glory, to reveal your salvation to the world, and to make disciples who know you, who know and obey you as the one true God. We pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May he cause you to be transformed into the likeness of his Son. Receive the fullness of his grace and truth, grace upon grace. Amen.